Hello, thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. It's episode 86 with Desdemona Chang. We talk about how she began as a director, her approach to directing, and her upcoming production of The Winter's Tale at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. If you're headed to Ashland, tickets are available at osfashland.org. The Winter's Tale runs June 9th through October 16th in the Allen Elizabethan Theater. Thank you to today's sponsor, Island Shakespeare Festival. ISF is Whidbey Island's professional regional repertory theater. Their 2016 summer season runs July 8th to September 11th with As You Like It, directed by artistic director Susanna Rose Woods, Julius Caesar, directed by award-winning Seattle director Corey McDaniel, who's also the producing artistic director of Theater 22, and finally Julie Beckman will direct her award-winning adaptation of Jane Eyre, which premiered at Book It Rep in 1999. For more information about Island Shakespeare Festival, visit their website at www.islandshakespearefest.org and check out their Facebook page. I am so excited to have you today, Desdemona Chang. This hey, is just, thank you for having me. I am thrilled. I've been very nervous. Oh my god, like no, why? <laughs> to meet you. But uh, here we are, and here thank we you are. for yeah. having me. And oh. <laughs> thanks for, thanks for trekking across <laughs> the water to come here. It's a very long journey, <laughs> that ferry ride. Um, so we've already kind of jumped into a really great conversation, I think, about what it is to be... A theater artist and and kind of the secret world <laughs> that we inhabit that yeah. we don't often get the opportunity to share so kind of touching back on that you were talking about being a director and not there's not a lot of it's yeah, a mystery right how, right opportunities I mean one yeah. of the things and then you know I'm I'm um on the adjunct faculty at Cornish College mm -hmm. and you know this is something I struggle with as um I, and I teach directing down there I teach uh, the advanced directing class for the seniors and one thing that I'm always trying to figure out is how the hell do you teach directing? You, you know, and it's, and it's not like you just show up for a class, you take a class, and when you're done, you're like, oh, I can direct now. I mean, you, you, you can learn basic skills and basic understandings of what, what it is, but you have to do it. And you have to do it in a way that, you know, that allows you freedom to fail. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, how do you have freedom to fail being watched? Right? Like one of the most exasperating things for my students is part of my class structure is they direct their work and I sit in the room and I watch them while they direct, which is like performance anxiety, right? <laughs> the director, the, directing is a really, really solitary craft, mm -hmm. right? Uh, for me, I mean, it's so funny because a lot of my work depends on the cooperation and participation of collaborators, right? Um, actors, designers, dramaturgs, playwrights, etc. But a lot of it is just me. It's, it's me deciding things. It's me having my own thought processes and uh -huh. me being able to say, oh, I think this is a good idea. That's a bad idea. And, the, and a kind of like mental curation of, of how you get from one step to another is largely what I think directing is. And how do you teach that? And how do you share that without performance anxiety? You know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I, mean, I guess I'm, I've been fortunate to have been doing it long-ish, not really, <laughs> not that long actually, <laughs> long-ish enough though um, to where I feel like I'm okay with being watched, uh -huh. you know, and I, and I, and I wish there was a way that the regional theater was more inviting to that, because um, I do think there is a kind of, a kind of protectiveness in the rehearsal space, 
I overheard this uh, when I was at OSF a couple years ago. I overheard Mary Zimmerman say, you know, the rehearsal room is sacred, yes, but it's not fragile, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's something that we have to revere and something we have to give respect to, but it's not so delicate that it'll break if we look at it, right? Right. So how do we find a way to make it sacred but not fragile? Because I think a lot of young directors come in and there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of ego, there's a lot of fragility around failure. So how do we create a kind of, you know, what folks are calling now, they're, they're calling it grit, right? Grit, resilience, mm -hmm. so that we can watch the thing and learn from it. Because I can't, I mean, I, I learned, the majority of my learning was from watching and doing and being watched and being critiqued while I was doing, which was <laughs> infuriating, but necessary. How do you critique a director, a directing student? How do you, like, what are you critiquing? Well, a lot of it is just interrogating their choices. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So when, you know, when I watch a student, it, you can, you know, and, and largely what I do is I just watch most of the time. And I, and I try not to interrupt because there's, a, there's a, an inherent power imbalance, right? Yeah. I'm the teacher. I'm in the room. Yeah. So once I talk, they all look at me. They all stop working, right? And I don't interrupt unless I feel like someone's floundering or there's an egregious error that's about to be made and, like, someone's, you know, it, it becomes unsafe. That's when I kind of say, okay, hold on, pause mm -hmm. for a second. You might not want to make that choice today, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think I had a student one time. I know, my assignments tend to be very challenging material. And so I had a student last semester who was trying to stage a scene in a strip club with a classmate who was, again, an actress who was, you know, naturally nervous about rehearsing a scene in a strip club as a stripper with the professor watching. Um, and he had said, well, let's just, let's just see if we can improv it, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, she was like, oh, okay. And of course, you know, when you're young and you want to be not difficult, you kind of go along with it. And I had to say, okay, hold, hold on for a second. You don't kind of improvise sexual material. You don't improvise violence. You don't improvise sex. I mean, cool because we're because here's the thing we're afraid of making it right we're afraid of making sex we're afraid of making violence and so what you would have to do is think of it i was like guys what i would suggest you do go home both of you actor director make up a couple of steps don't even think of it as like a whole sequence one move two moves come back tomorrow with a couple of things and then string together a couple of moves in sequence make it mechanical Make it like choreography, zero sexiness that is robotic, and it'll be yucky for now, but it'll get better, right? And so, so there's a way of like dipping your toe into that, that process. Um, and they both kind of went, oh. Because you can imagine, you know, the first time director or first time actor, and they're trying to do this really difficult scene, and here we are, we're going to improvise a strip scene, right. and, yeah. and it gets really dangerous and unsafe. Yeah. Right, so that's kind of what that I That avoidance of the really difficult material kind of like right and so we kind of think around it, like having to really investigate it and dive yeah into it. And, and yeah and the idea that we can kind of well let's just let's just improvise and see what happens yeah right there's a kind of we we tend to treat difficult material with a kind of nonchalance uh -huh. in an attempt to diffuse the danger right yeah which i totally understand and at the same time it's like you're playing with fire in that way yeah so, i mean that that's the kind that's the closest i've been able to 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 construct a kind of learning experience as you know, for directors and directing uh -huh. students yeah. is a kind of observing, mutually observing. And it's not a lecturable, teachable thing. You know? right. And I feel like the more I can watch my colleagues direct, I, you know, whenever I can, mm -hmm. um, I want to watch as many professional theater, no, professional directors and theaters directing. Mm -hmm. If I could crash rehearsals at, at ACT or the Rep, I totally would. Um, 
and every director is different, you know, and some directors don't like it, and some directors are totally cool with it. So mm-hmm. it really is a case-by-case situation. Yeah. yeah. How did you come to directing? I came to directing uh, in a very unexpected way. I had never intended to do theater as oh. a kid. I was never artistically inclined as That's a kid. That's interesting with a name like Desdemona. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Um, you'd think that, right? <laughs> uh, right. Um, I wondered, I wondered that. Yeah, so I... Um, I grew up knowing that I had a very, like, precocious-sounding name. And so, I think because of that, I always fancied myself to be a bit of an intellectual um, and very literate, but not very talented in the, in the world of performing arts. Like, I was never... I was a very bashful kid. I was a very mm-hmm. quiet, kind of... I'm an only child, and so I was Me always... Too. Oh, really? Yeah, bro. Yes! Um, so, you know, solitude is yeah, awesome. Yes. Quiet absolutely. time by myself is awesome. Yeah. And so I was never, you know, and still now I feel like, you know, um, it took a lot of training for me to get used to talking in groups to mm-hmm. be, to be the kind of outwardly director person that I think people come to see me as. Uh-huh. Um, but it took years of practice. It's not where I naturally live. Yeah. Uh, but I had intended to be a doctor. Um, because culturally there's that expectation when you're an Asian, you know, growing up in America and I'm an immigrant. I was born in Taiwan. Um, and I grew up in LA and was always really good in school. I was always really hardworking and studious and kind of driven. And so it it made sense that I would just go to medical school and be a doctor. And, you know, I actually want to be a gynecologist because when I was 15, I had my first session and was really, really upset that I had a male gynecologist. And so I said, well, Forget this. I'm going to be a lady, and I'm going to be a lady gynecologist uh-huh. and help other ladies. So that was kind yes. of the beginning of my first like sense of you know, activism or whatever. Yeah. So, um, I and I you know had gotten into UC Berkeley for my undergrad, um, and uh, the first year of my courses, I had to take um, an arts requirement because they think, well, you're a science major, but you have to take one arts class, yeah. so you're a balanced human, and so. <laughs> One arts class will do it. One arts class will totally make you a balanced <laughs> human. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. But I had, you know, and I was just looking for the, I mean, frankly, it was the easiest class I could take because I was not interested in writing any more papers or, you know, I was like, okay, I was asking around my fellow science majors and I said, all right, guys, what is the easiest class that I can take that I will ace? And someone had said, intro to acting is actually a great class because there's no lecture, there's no paper. You like it's a class of twelve people. You like stand in a circle and clap all day. You play charades. You pretend to be animals, and you get it. And everyone gets an A. No one, no one has ever gotten anything less than an A in that class. And I was like, sweet, great, there you go. So I signed up, and I did stand in a circle and clap and play charades. And I was an animal. I played many zip zap zop. Zip zap zop. All those, yes, all the crazy acting. All those, all those crazy acting totally. exercises we all learned, and it was so goofy. <laughs> and so fun. And I had and I don't remember having that kind of fun as an adult, huh. right? Um, being a very serious kid, I was never, you know, very vulnerable or very reckless or very playful in that way. And so that class kind of brought out a side of me that I didn't really I never really thought about, right? And yeah. I didn't I mean this is all in retrospect. At the time it was just awesome, fun, and I like you crazy people. <laughs> You, the sociology major, you, the, you know, mechanical engineer, and you, a couple of theater kids too, but we're all, none of us would ever be in the same room, were not for this class, playing Zip Zap Zop. Uh-huh. And so I found myself making friendships, 
and like having relationships with people that I never would have expected to hang out with, um, talking about really silly things and just being really connected and suddenly having a sense of belonging that I never felt when I was doing biology. You know, mm. biology always felt correct. It felt like correct and appropriate and like, yes, a logical, let's do that, right? And the theater, you know, so that class led to the scene study class, mm -hmm. which then led to maybe a class in Shakespeare, maybe a class in Chekhov, and then maybe I auditioned for stuff and never got cast, but I never auditioned for stuff. And then I would accrue like, a couple of shows and then I, you know, would do like the student theater programs mm -hmm. and be part of that undergraduate theater club, right? That drama club. Um, did all that, and by the time I got to the end of my junior year, I had enough credits for a double major. So I said, all right, well, <laughs> I might as well, so I just have a double so major. So you stayed with the science I all did. the way through. Yeah, I did. I think there was, I mean, because I think the fear, yeah, so deeply afraid. And I didn't even, I mean, I had no intention of leaving, because I was, it was like, you know, I'll just do the theater thing, college would be great, but I'm still going to be a doctor, right? Wow. I'm still going to do the science thing. And when I... I declared my double major, I got more and more into theater, and I realized toward the end of my studies that I think medicine was not where I wanted to go. I found that the, the deeper I got into the science of it, the biology of the lab work, and I think the moment came for me when I had to take a class called Human Anatomy, which is essentially like dissection of bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and I walked into the laboratory, and there were two body bags on two gurneys in the lab. One was male, one was female, and they had like death certificates with the you know, confidential stuff crossed out cause of death, age, weight, blah, blah, blah. And we just had to look at them like specimens. Wow. And I couldn't do it because the entire time I was thinking, this is someone's father or this is someone's husband or, yeah. right? Because theater makes you feel all the feeling, humanistic feels. And medicine requires you to not have those so that you can do your job appropriately and professionally. And I think I was too soft for medicine. Mm -hmm. I don't think I have the kind of steeledness that I think really, really, really good doctors have. The ability to do the job and not cry every night right. when stuff goes yeah, wrong. Right? To think and of I would, a body just as a body. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. it's biology. It's yeah. not people. Right. Um, and I found that really difficult because I would, you know, I would go to class and I would read and they had all these other books, you know, around like leisurely reading while you're doing your lab dissections and, you know, it's a very loosely structured class, but I would read a lot of, you know, accounts, um, and journals from medical students at Harvard, and I felt like, wow, it's so, you don't talk about these people as people. You talk about them like they're tissues and cells, mm -hmm. and, and meanwhile, I'm, I'm in the theater talking about, what's my objective? What does my character <laughs> want? What is my character's biggest hope and biggest dream and biggest fear? Yeah, so deeply investigating right? humanity and what makes us human. Right, yeah. and so, I mean, and it's I do... It's a really interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, and I, and, I so, and I still love biology because mm -hmm. I think they're both, I mean, in a kind of crazy way, they're both like studies of life right? yeah. to me. Yeah. But one I felt intrinsically connected to, mm -hmm. and the other one required that I cut off that connection to make it work. And so I was like, oh, well, I guess I can't do that. It didn't feel good to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and I still respect and I still love the intellectual pursuit of it. And I still love the fact that it's, you know, rigorous and, you know, problem solving, which is part, partly why I love directing, too. It's rigorous and problem solving. So then and intellectual. And so, yeah. 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 Right. And so, and then, so I kind of stumbled upon directing while taking an undergraduate class. And in my kind of curiosity of like, oh, what else is in the theater? What does a stage manager do? What? What does a technical director do? There's a costume designer in this. And so I kind of was poking That's around. so great. I was kind of just poking around the mm -hmm. entire theater infrastructure. 
And then, you know, I was like, well, oh, directing, I guess I'll take that class. I knew that plays had directors, um, but I didn't know what they did. I just knew that that person was kind of in charge. Uh-huh. Um, didn't understand, like, oh, right, blocking. <laughs> when I watch that, it means they practice doing that for a long time. <laughs> it just never dawned on me that yeah. when I watch a play that people had to practice walking the same pattern of steps on stage uh-huh. for weeks at a time. <laughs> uh, duh, right? Well, but <laughs> when you're not thinking about the process and what goes into the process... Right. You just kind of watch it, wow, what a great show. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, so when I took a directing class, um, and I had a wonderful professor, his name is Christopher Harold at UC Berkeley, and he was so supportive and was so tolerant of people's dumbass decisions, you know what I mean? <laughs> that I just felt so encouraged. And I was like, I, I really like this part of the theater. You know, I was auditioning for stuff and not getting cast um, because I was a bad actor. And I think because there weren't parts for me mm-hmm. or that there were parts that they I did not perceived to be appropriate for and so I mean the larger conversation around diversity and inclusion was not around 20 years ago right so I just thought I was like well they keep doing noises off and they keep doing midsummer and I'm clearly not going to be cast in either of those shows Hmm. um so I'll just do rando Shakespeare with my friends in the park and I'll do rando improv and I did improv a lot in college but directing that class kind of crystallized something for me or mm-hmm. I found like oh this feels right there's a reason why you know I get bumped at opening and not you know and I hate doing the run like why am I still doing this show <laughs> Ugh. and like during tech everyone's in the you know the green room napping and I'm watching Q and Q to Q or something mm-hmm. like that right so there were the little hints along the way but once I took the class I was like yeah I think I like I like this part almost like you know Telling people what to do, I guess. <laughs> I, like the, I like being the one who got to decide. Yeah. Um, maybe that's an only child thing. I'm also, the old, I'm, also, I'm also the oldest of all the grandkids in my family. Oh. So I've, I've always been naturally like Oh, that's in interesting. That's an in interesting dynamic to me. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is a, a long-winded way of saying that's No, that's great. Correctly. Was that hard in your family? Did you feel like... Um, it, is that a hard choice to make? To Well, I mean, it was kind of like... You make it without telling your parents? Uh-huh. I don't know. At what point do you, like, come clean with it and face the reality of disappointment and potential exclusion and potential shame and all mm-hmm. the baggage that I think we shouldn't have to deal with? But, you know, I, um, I had talked to my mom and my mom. So, you know, she was... My mom actually uh, went to a theater school. Really? Yeah. Um, it's a really, really... The, so the, the way I got my name, this is a kind of crazy story. My mom, um, this is what she tells me. And I have, people have told me that they don't believe this story, but this, I'm like, this is what my mom told me, all right? So, <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell it like she told me, and we'll let that be. Um, so my mom grew up in Taiwan in the 60s, and uh, they had an education system that was, like, government-sanctioned. So you know how in America you take the SATs, you apply to college, and you get in, and you pick <clears> the school you want to go to, <throat> right? In Taiwan... You took a standardized test, and you were placed in a school. So it wasn't about choice. It wasn't about applications. It was just, here's the test. Here's your score. Here's the ranking. Top 5% go to this school. Next 5% go to this school. Right? And it was a very, very... And there were vocational schools. Mm -hmm. So no matter what you wanted to do, if you scored within a certain bracket, you were going to be an engineer. Wow. You were going to be, you know, go to business school. You were going to have a liberal arts education. And it had nothing to do with your own personal desires or wants or... Right? And my mom wanted to be a journalist. 
she was she loved writing, she loved you know um, journalism and broadcasting, and she wanted to go into the school of communications. And my mother was also a terrible test taker, terrible test taker. And so she studied, and this is this test like dictated your future for you. And um, I can't imagine. The, yeah. Ugh. And so you know like. And only a fraction of maybe a half of these kids went to college. And if you didn't get, if you didn't pass, you either went to the labor force, you went to work, or you would take the you would take it next year, or you go to the military. Right? Those are your options. Mm-hmm. So my mom, who was a terrible test taker, um, took the test and scored. I mean, she passed, but scored really, really badly. She was like in the bottom five percent or something like that. And so they placed her in theater school. So. Apparently, even the bottom five percent, you become a theater artist. That's really fascinating. <laughs> that like that is just an interesting study on its own of like. Yeah, okay. I had someone tell me like, really, bottom five percent? Wouldn't you need like literate, like lit- like reading skills and writing skills and other skills? But not everyone thinks of necessarily right. all that goes into. You know, for right. for centuries, theater artists were the lowest of the low. Right, we're, right, we're like pirates and thieves or something. Yeah, exactly. Like that, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, actors were like in, the, in this great chain of being pirates and thieves and actors. <laughs> yeah. So so my mom has always been like, ah. and I told her, well, you did theater. She's like, I know, I didn't choose it. I would never. Wow. I wouldn't choose this. I I spent four years, you know, reading plays and being in plays and making costs. And she had a great time and she learned a lot. And so when I tell my mom I'm in tech, she's like, oh, okay, I'll call you later. <laughs> you know, I yeah, mean, that's, yeah. that's a crazy, like, I don't know, unexpected benefit of, yeah. of all this happening yeah. is that my mom completely understands my lifestyle. Completely. Wow. Um, and for a long time. And when I was first starting out in my 20s, out of college, having not done science and you know, done a few jobs at the, you know, the dot-com thing was happening in, like, 2000, mm-hmm. right? And so I had, like, kicked around a couple of new media jobs, temping here and there, and was kind of, like, aimless for a couple of years, not knowing what I wanted to do. Um, as every undergraduate is out of college, we're all kind of lost and floundering mm-hmm. for the first few years out of school. I just stayed in school as long as I could. Yeah, right? There, I mean, why would I ever want to leave? Like, okay. It's like the shelter of academia. It's beautiful. It's the womb. It is. Oh, man. Yes. Um, But for, you know, she would just kind of watch. And she, my mom never, she never forbid me to do it. She she wouldn't say, no, don't do that. But she would, you know, watch me like audition for plays. And I'd be doing like these really crappy black box theater plays in Hollywood. Like stage managing for really (laughs) shitty people. (laughs) In L.A., which is where I'm from. Like my family's in L.A. now. And um, so I, would, I went back home, and I was, mm-hmm. like, trying to do theater and apl- applying for internships at the taper if I could. And my mom was just like, wow. She's like, why? Why are you doing this? I mean, I understand it, but you know you need to eat, you know? You need to pay the rent. And Those positive things. Yeah, yes. and so I think she always... Um, and, she, and she would occasionally, like, nudge and say, like, you know, law school... <laughs> business school MBAs are great you know uh, you, it, you're so smart you have such a good memory you could you could be a great lawyer I mean really really you might want to think about like quality of life yeah really. yeah you know and she I mean she's not wrong she's not wrong no you know and so I, I think that's like, a fair point for yeah. a parent to point out yeah like, just and so to consider. and she would kind of look at me she said I've done this too I, I have friends who've done this. They do this, and they don't make money. They are, yeah. they are in their 50s, and they don't have money. 
don't be like them, please. You're my only child, you know? So I think there was a lot of anxiety for her. Yeah. Um, looking back now, I'm for sure it's like, yeah, we could look back and I was like, yeah, I'm actually working, I'm, I'm active, and I have a, I'm, I'm starting a, a reasonable career. So mm-hmm. she's, she's relaxed a lot since then. But she, I remember, like, out of school, she would just be, you know, just worried, mm-hmm. worried, and tolerant, and so patient, and trying to, and she was just waiting for me to, like, come to my senses, in a way. And I think she was always, like, frustrated that I never came to my senses. And it wasn't until, at one point, after kind of kicking around the fringe scene in L.A. and San Francisco for a while, I decided, you know what, I actually want to do this for real. Right? I'm not going to mess around. What do I have to do to make this for real? Because the more I did theater, the more I realized, or that I saw, there is a professional community. There is one. Why am I not there? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean... Obviously, many reasons, but oh. <laughs> but I, I but I but I was looking around and I, and I saw examples of people. I saw like artistic directors at repertory theaters around the country, and they don't have day jobs temping. So, shit. Okay. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe what I need is more training, and more networking, and like, okay. So I applied to grad school. And that was kind of, so for me, like, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this is the case for everyone, but for me at the time, an MFA felt like the right thing to do mm-hmm. um, because I needed something um, structural. I needed that intense three years of training that I really, you know, an undergrad was kind of, it was a BA. It was kind of like fun and games, you know, but if I, if I was going to raise the bar for myself, I wanted an MFA in, in directing and I applied and, um, did the grad school application tour and got into UW. And that's how I ended up in Seattle. And the rest is just, I guess, we keep working. Like, keep yeah, working and keep yeah, trying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. That did does your mom do? You, does she, is she passionate about theater? Does she? She loves watching it. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's so funny because she'll you know, it, you know I think I remember when Chinglish went to Broadway a few years ago. She she was like, David Henry Hong has a play on Broadway. Let's go see it. It's about Chinese people. <laughs> and I was like, sure, okay. And it's funny because, you know, my mom did do a good amount of, like, Western theater, but it was translated mm-hmm. in Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. And so she know. I mean, she's read Ibsen. She's mm-hmm. read Chekhov and Shaw and Shakespeare, but just in Chinese. So she knows the plot of all of these classical plays. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she enjoys it. She really mm-hmm. does have an appreciation for theater. Um, she's also incredibly busy, so... <laughs> Uh, she, when she can, she'll come see my work and she came up to see, you know, Measure of Measure at Seattle Shakes mm-hmm. and she'll come up to see Winner's Tale at OSF. So, you know, I think she'll call me and cause she, you know, she's like, you're doing like five shows a year. Tell me when it's the one I should come to. Like, is, should I come to this one? Is it worth it to buy a plane ticket and fly out and like stay at a hotel in like three days and come see you and, you know, mm-hmm. so, and she, and she's also very, um. It's not romantic for her. It's a very practical question of like, you know, I support you and you know, I'll always, you know, yeah. help you if you need the help and you'll always have my kind of, I don't know. It's hard to say because I don't think my mom was always emotionally supportive, but she was definitely like financially supportive. And I'm very blessed to say that, you know, I didn't always have money, but I feel like I was very lucky that I was, when I, whenever I was in a pickle, she was always willing to like loan me some cash, you mm-hmm. know, in a way that I feel like some folks just don't have that luxury. Yeah. Um, so where you are today in your career, what, how do you feel like you're developing your own technique as a director? Like, what do you, how do you approach a text and what do you first look at when you're 
like for example, you're about to start rehearsal for yeah. um, Winter's Tale, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of my favorites. Everyone says that. I think everyone, <sighs> almost everyone, they say it's either one of their favorites or their or favorite. Like, oh really? Oh good. Yeah. A lot of people say it's my favorite Shakespeare. I love that play. It's like a challenging play, but it is. There's something so magical inherently in yeah. in it that just is. And who doesn't want redemption? Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. The payoff is like so beautiful. So, for example, with this play, how what what where do you start? Do you think of is it different for every play? No, of? it actually isn't for me. Um, <clears throat> it comes down and 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 I, and I treat Shakespeare like I treat a new play. Mm -hmm. um, cool. And it's, and it's really hard because Shakespeare plays each have their own legacy of production. And so you kind of inherit the baggage of previous shows. And you kind of have to like try to unknow stuff. Like pretend, Absolutely. Pretend you don't know that. Yes. You don't know that. You know? It's hard. Yeah, that's really hard. That's really hard. Because actors have to start playing convention before they start playing what's actually on the table. Yes. <laughs> like that's, how do you know that? You know that because you were just conditioned to know that? Or is that actually what's on the paper? Right. Uh, and I, tr I try to. I try, try, try. And it's so hard because, you know, once you... Knowledge, right? Like, once you have Absolutely. it, you can't unhave yeah. it. Well, because each play is an icon on its own. I interviewed Tim yeah. Gowron a few months ago mm -hmm. about playing an icon in Mozart. Uh -huh. And we talked a little bit about how... And, and I related that to having played Juliet. And that being my first experience with Shakespeare as a four-year-old and falling in love with Shakespeare and from that time yeah. like not giving myself another option for yeah. a career it was gonna be Shakespeare nice so then to have At the four yeah I was a weird kid no but that's great it means you're able to like parse beyond the language to like yeah. the actual heart of the, the I mean, it, it, I do think it's there's something melodic in the language. Absolutely, it's not just Definitely. it's not just comprehension of words. No, no, because no. I was you know I was watching the Franco Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet as like a little kid, and I had my little vial of poison that oh like was an old God. perfume bottle, and oh. I, my dad was building a deck on the second story, so I had a balcony. It was like the perfect storm of Juliet for me at oh four. Oh, <laughs> but then adorable. to play this iconic role that for me was like the end all and be all of Shakespeare and, and my career and what I wanted to do was like really intimidating and yeah. then thinking about it for a year yeah. <laughs> was like, so yeah. that they're all these iconic stories that have, that do have a legacy yeah. and it's, it is really hard to find your own story there and find yep. what's new. Yep. And if I can, I try my best. <laughs> um, well, with any play, you start with the script and yeah. you read it just straight through. What I, what I try to do after that first read is hold on to whatever my first impression is because you never get that back, right? Things either become clearer to you or less clear to you, but that first impression of like, that part was really boring. Probably because it's really boring, yeah. you know? Or like, <laughs> man, that guy's a dick. Probably because he is, you know? So there's, I mean, and, and your first impressions may not always be right, but no, that's potentially what an audience might experience coming to see your show the first Oh, time. that's you know? a, yeah. Um, that's a really cool and, and you can either... If done, like, as faithfully on the page, it could be, right? And so that's when you start to, like, all right, what do I have to fix, resolve, accentuate inside the script? Yeah. To kind of adjust for what I perceive to be flaws or, um, you know, the good stuff. Yeah. Like the flaws or the virtues or, you know. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, of that script. 
So that's what I do on the first read. And upon subsequent readings, what I try to do is, you know, what the play is about. And you have to know what the play is about. Um, and I have to be able to articulate that, what the play is about in mm-hmm. one sentence. One sentence that includes a verb. A play is not about love. A play is not about justice. What are you going to do to the justice? Mm-hmm. You're going to fight for it? You're going to cheat it? You're going to... Because actors need action, right? And so direct, the play has a driving action. If you can articulate the action of the play, you can then articulate what is the thing that's moving this damn thing forward, mm. right? You ever watch a theater, a piece of theater, where you're watching, you're like, yeah, it just feels like stuff's just happening. I don't know why it's happening, but things are just kind of happening. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, th- we talk about things like, okay, what's your character's motivation? What's the obstacle, right? These, these are all things that come out of this question of what is this play? Yeah. About? And, the, and yeah. the aboutness. I mean, you know, um, Harold Corman, who's you know, one of the texts that I read in grad school, it's, and it's a very common directing text on directing, um, he talks about the spine of the play, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a very directory thing to say. So if I can, if I can read The Winter's Tale <laughs> and figure out what that play is about in one sentence. What's it about? Right now is about healing through faith. Mm. I'm still cool. toying with it. It's still tweaking right now. Yeah. Right? If, you have, if you have faith, you can heal. Yeah. The language part of articulating the spine is really important. So I'm still figuring out whether or not it's, is it healing or is it restoring, right? Um, and that for me has to do with the lens. Like if you're looking at, if you're looking at like the state of the state of Cecilia, it's a healing, mm-hmm. and if it's for Leontes is a restoration. Um, and they're two, and they're kind of similar, but they're not the same. Right. And so, or is it a resurrection? Is is it like are you are you resurrecting something? And I don't think that's what it is. Yeah. Um, there's something about you have to restore what you've lost. Uh-huh. You messed up really bad in this life, right? But if you have faith, and if you pay, you know, if you if time as time goes on, if you have faith that it gets better, you have you have potentially you have to potentially whole again, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of where I am with that. And for me, the spine, like, ideally, just gets clearer and clearer and clearer. Mm-hmm. It starts off as like, oh, I think it's about, I think it's about, um, like, resurrection. I think it's about, I think it's... And I start kicking out all kinds of words. Yeah. Words, 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 words. And I'll sit with it for a while, and it'll change. Like, next month, I'll think it's like, oh, no, it's actually more specifically about this, right? Mm. So it's not like I find it and land on it. Right. Distilling it through, yeah, and I'm sure, and it gets more specific. And as once you get yeah. actors and you start blocking them, and it's like, okay, then how does the yeah. blocking reflect that spine? Right. How does my staging and the visual telling of the story reflect healing? What does healing look like? Yeah. You know that moment that statue comes alive. What what pose is she in? What how does she get off that thing? Mm-hmm. What is the reaction to it? And how does does that look like healing? Is there a healing moment then if that has to happen? Right. If that's kind of if, if that's the thing I'm chasing. Yeah. Right. That's really yeah. So it's like finding your thesis statement and then supporting. And then everything your thesis comes out of that. Statement. Everything yeah. has to come out of that. Yeah. Yeah. If you have a rock solid, you know, articulation of what the play is about, mm-hmm. and the idea is that if it's really simple, you can totally get more specific once you get into design choices. Yeah. Right. It's a really simple like one, like a phrase. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I think I will think about all theater in a very different way. From <laughs> that. That's like. Yeah, but it's also yeah. like you know because part of my job is a it's a I have I have to have a very holistic perspective on it. Yeah. Right. I mean, actors. What I love about about actors is that your work is so deep. 
Yes. You take this piece of the pie and you go deep into it. And you and actors can find details that I will never see. And ideally, the you know, the great the greatest like symbiotic relationship is for me to give you one one piece of direction and from there you explode into like five thousand choices that you can mm-hmm. make. Um, and that's what I love about working with with good actors. Yeah. You just go, Yeah, I think he's tired today. And then from there it's like, oh, you're moving differently, you're sitting differently, you're speaking differently, you're looking at people differently. If I can give you a circumstance about your character that that's then so helpful. completely that's changes. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. He split up with her. Great. And then all that, right? Yeah. So what's the um for for the process of choosing Twelfth Night, is that is this a play that you've wanted to direct? Or? Oh, Winter's Tale? Oh, sorry, Winter's Tale. Yes, Twelfth Night was... You were... Um, I was a fair assistant director years ago. Yeah. At, um, in 2010. Yeah. That was my first year at OSF. And I most recently went back as an SDC fellow, and then kind of was hooked into the FAIR program kind of by association. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel very blessed to be part of the kind of extended friends and family of yeah. OSF. Um, you know, the company is, you know, has a very, very strong diversity and inclusion initiative. Yes. Um, they're very actively, you know, trying to find ways to redefine Shakespeare, um, in different communities. Uh, and so one of the things that they're interested in for in 2016 was how do you, know, cause they've done ethnically specific Shakespeare in other years. Mm-hmm. They did an all black comedy of errors. Mm-hmm. They did a kind of Latino, um, I guess measure uh, for measure, measure for yeah. measure, yeah. And so, Bill had thought like, you know, I think we want to try doing the Asian Shakespeare this year. And so we had a conversation. You know, we had arranged a conference call amongst a number of the current, you know, kind of friends and family extended mm-hmm. members. And we just, you know, it was like an hour long conversation around, is this even a good idea? Why do I want to do this? You know, is it going to feel like pandering? Is it a cheap move that we're doing? You know, and so. I feel like, you know, and my feeling was, the question is going to be how we do this, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's important. I think it's important. I think for some, I mean, there are going to be some folks looking at oh, you're just pandering, right? You're just going to, it's just a clever, it's a clever concept thing, uh, and, and they don't buy it. And that's fine. And I think that's fine, too. But I think there's something to be said about trying to challenge the way we perceive Shakespeare uh, and who gets to do it and how it gets to be done. Um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I have an MFA in directing. I'm trained mm-hmm. to, to direct Shakespeare. Um, it should make sense that I should be allowed to direct the thing that I was trained to do mm-hmm. with my degree, you know? So, you know, things like that. Uh, and it's, it's challenging because, and I think Shakespeare is not like other classical pieces. I feel like if you were to look at like Tennessee Williams, Right, I would probably not be the first director you think of when you're programming Tennessee Williams, right? And that's through no fault of my own, no fault mm-hmm. of Mr. Williams, no fault right. of the theater. It is a we have social models mm-hmm. around who, and I think because it's you know our, our the, the theater has a legacy. Mm-hmm. The theater and American society has a legacy mm-hmm. of well, certain people do certain kinds of work. Right? And people who look like me don't have a legacy of doing work by people like Tennessee Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can make the argument for like, well, people who don't look like Alcos Wilson have never done Alcos Wilson work. Right? So there's, there's that mm-hmm. argument to make too, and I don't, I don't want to get too into like the activism part of it. <laughs> yeah. and that's not what this is about. Um, but I do think that, you know, if there's an opportunity to 
you know, provide a new lens on mm-hmm. something. Absolutely. It's valuable. And yeah. I think... Well, it's yeah. that universality, too, of, you know, yeah. Shakespeare. I, you know, I, and I always, I always get nervous about the word universality around Shakespeare because I think it's, it's so specific, too. Like, things feel universal when they feel specific. Hmm. You know? Because I don't think August Wilson is very... I mean, I think, sure, his work is universal, but his work is so specific. It is specific. Right? Mm-hmm. But we somehow, we somehow, because humans are empathetic creatures, mm-hmm. we can look at a situation around a culture that is not my culture, but we identify with it. Because mm-hmm. I think we have, an, we have an inclination to connect. Yeah. Unless you're a sociopath, and then you're kind of... You then know, you don't. Then you don't. But yeah. Right. Most of the time, I mean, it's, it's the reason why, when, even when you look at the kookiest piece of performance art, you want to structure it, you want to find some kind of narrative. Mm-hmm. Oh, that moment where she, like dumps the feathers on his head because she's leaving him. You know, like, we want to make sense of things. We right, want to make sense and find that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We want to find relatability. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I guess all this is to say was, you know, if the phone call happened and we had a conversation around this idea of the Asian Shakespeare and it was, you know, met with a lot of enthusiasm and also, but, but also a lot of care. Like, okay, so mm-hmm. what's the play? And who's, who's going to do it? Um... And I think at some point someone has suggested the Winter's Tale. So it wasn't the initial conversation wasn't we want to do the Winter's Tale no. through this lens. It no. was we want to use this lens. What play? Right. Will right. Okay. It, it was it was definitely a politically driven uh-huh. um, initiative, uh, and that and I think that's another way of going about it. Totally. Yeah. Um, and so we you know they knew they were going to do Hamlet. They knew they were going to do Timon. Um, and we just did not want to do time in because that, what? So someone had said, you know, I really love The Winter's Tale. And it's been like, it's been 10 years. And Bill said, I love The Winter's Tale. I think this is a great idea. Um, let's all sleep on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll try to, you know, we'll reconvene and, and, see, and see where it goes. And so after that, I had thought, okay, how... How is going to work? The Winter's Tale, and for some reason, like the Winter's Tale felt intuitively right to me too. And I was like, "Well, why? 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 Is it because it's a fairy tale, and is it because it's it feels like once upon a time and a magical thing, and somehow Asia feels like a magical far away thing and not real? I mean, that's kind of fetishistic, right? And so there's a part of me that was like, I dig it, but I'm not going to be making. Is it? Is this going to be? And I, and I and I didn't get the I, at the time. I hadn't had the job yet. I was mm-hmm. just one of many people that Bill was considering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to think like long and hard about like why is the winter still important? Why is this, why why does it feel right? And at the same time, why am I so nervous around it? And so I went back and I reread the play, and I did the whole like what's the play about? Well, I don't know what the play's about yet. I just read it. Um, there's something about restoring something. There's something about it feeling complete at the end. There's something about it being healed that there's a feeling of it being good and okay. And that was something I was kind of latching on to at first. And then I looked and I read it a second time and I noticed, well, I mean, the play has always felt like two halves, right? You got your Cecilia half, you got Bohemia half. Mm-hmm. And there's something about these two halves being two individually, you know, complete but really imperfect plays. You can look at Act 1 as a tragedy, you can look at Act 2 as a comedy, um, and you can totally cut out the other part of it and just tell this like one act of a really, really bad one act, right? <laughs> but then we put the two of them together, it somehow like completes a cycle. Mm-hmm. It's a very like, 
you know, bifurcated, polarized, yin-yang kind of thing, where it's like winter, spring. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It takes place in Sicilia and Bohemia. One is a parental generation. One is a filial generation. One is very patriarchal. One is very, like, you know, one's a queen of the harvest. Mm-hmm. And so there all, the play was all about, the one, when I thought about it, it was all about these dual contradictions. Yeah. Right? And I thought, well, if that's the impulse then what if we include East and West as one of the contradictions in The Winter's Tale? And I said, what does, even, what does that even mean, right? Um, and I was like, well, why do I like The Winter's Tale? And who do I identify with in The Winter's Tale? And of course, as a young lady, I identify with Perdita, the princess, because that's who I am. I'm princess, right? I'm not the dead queen with, the, with children, because I don't have children. But I feel like the young princess who comes to America as an immigrant, because that's who I was, I was a, you know, a young lady who came to America feeling like, oh, I'm from another place, but this is my home. And I, and I kind of, you know, it was in a weird way, like this, of course, this all comes to you like a, 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 a flash, right? It wasn't like a thoughtful meditation. <laughs> in my life. But I was like, yeah, Bohemia kind of feels like a crazy wild place that isn't like where you're from, but a fun, progressive you know, yeah. uh, and I come from, you know, it's not my family per se, but I come from a culture that is really austere, you know, um, it's really, really old. Like Chinese history is thousands upon thousands of years old, a very imperialistic culture, you know, based on like... And can be traced. Yeah. Like, and, right? Yeah, and so it's a so dynastic right. culture, yeah. and it's something that I am so not connected to. Mm. I'm like, French fries and hamburgers, I'm not, you know, I don't, you know, and so that, that was always the joke I had growing up. It was like, oh, you must be an American. You like hamburgers and french fries. But I have, I have whatever that, I don't know, cultural DNA of the old land, you know, mm-hmm. somehow. And so in a strange way, like my mom and I had gone back to Taiwan a few years back. And I remember like setting foot there and thinking like, yeah, everyone here looks like me. But I so don't belong here. And I come back home to Seattle, and I feel like, ah, kind of people look like me sometimes. But this totally makes sense, and this is my home. So there's a feeling of displacement and, and a kind of unreconciled, I don't know, identity thing mm-hmm. that feels, you know, it's a bit of a tangential stretch when it comes to Winter's Tale, but that was kind of like my hook in initially was, well, what if, what if Cecilia was this like ancient, dynastic, Chinese place? And what if Bohemia was... America. That's totally like an immigrant, an immigrant, whatever perspective. But I was like, well, that's I'm an immigrant. That's not perspective. And so, kind of you know, kicking that around, and I, and I just sat in front of the computer and I just wrote, 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 and I just wrote all these notes down. And I was trying to figure out, like, trying to make sense out of all these thoughts I was having, uh-huh. all these thoughts and feelings around the play. And one of that was just the approach. The approach is this half, that half, and ultimately it's about the coming together of these two halves. Because right, one of the things we're, we're trying to figure out politically was, is this an Asian Shakespeare or an Asian American Shakespeare? And there's a difference. I think, you know, uh, you know, maybe some folks know or don't know that, like, Asian theater or the Asian identity is very different than the Asian American identity, right? Um, and that there's always a, a, a kind of pull at what it means to be foreign, you know? Part of the Asian American identity, for me at least, has always felt like perpetual foreigner, mm-hmm. Right. I feel foreign back there, and I feel foreign over here a little bit. And so somehow, if 
that play is in, in this crazy. I mean, it, we're, we're still we're still doing the Winter's Tale. This is not going to be a treatise on Asian America. That if somehow there's a feeling of the two holes coming together and making sense, you know, these two worlds coming together and making oh, sense. That's so cool. So that's and that and and so I you know wrote this crazy essay and I sent it to Bill and I was like, this is a crazy thought, but what if? Click. And um, he was into it. He was into it. And so I think that's kind of, you know, and we've been kind of chasing, I mean, there's, and there are other things to iron out, a lot of details. Like, so what part of China is there an era we're talking about? Mm -hmm. Is it, and where in America? What are we talking about there? You know, and we eventually landed on um, the story being a story being a fairy tale, we're going to do inspired by as opposed to literally representing certain things. And so we're taking a very Han-inspired. And the Han, the Han Dynasty was around 200 AD, so definitely a, a very ancient um, aesthetic. Um, but it's inspired by that. And so there's you know, touches of couture, there's definitely something very clean and timeless, um, very austere, I think, about that world. And then when we get to Bohemia, I had kicked out initially the idea that, well, what if, you know, from, from the perspective of when the Chinese first came to America, which was around the 1850s to build the railroad, which is at the time, Manifest Destiny, at the time that America was coming into its own being, like westward and expansion mm -hmm. and the new, the new frontier, there was a, this, a, this feeling of like promise and growth and like agriculture. And so what if Bohemia was this new uncharted territory of dirt and wildflowers and like agrarian culture happening? Like it's wine country, but before it was wine country, it was like wine country in the 1800s, right? Yeah. And so we were kind of playing with this steampunky, um, nomad, gypsy Bohemia in the wild. When I say wild west, you think Deadwood, but not. It's not Deadwood. But it has a kind of like rumpusy, uh -huh. you know, wildflower, hay and dirt feeling. So that's kind of where we are with yeah. I just talked a lot about the production. <laughs> I can't wait to see it. Sounds... Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still, I mean, the play still, we, it still circles back to, you know, how do we heal and restore mm -hmm. through faith? And like, you know, why we love it so much is we can fuck everything up, kill the wife, kill the baby, lose the daughter, lose the kingdom. And at the end of the day, somehow through like, just a sheer power of goodness and faith that we can be restored, you know? I think that's why we love it so much. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Who doesn't want to feel like, oh, I got a second chance, yeah. right? And it's so much about that. It is yeah. the, that, at the end, that payoff is just so cathartic for everyone yeah. to experience, yeah. I think. Um, switching gears a little bit, I'd love to hear a little bit about your company. In mm -hmm. Seattle? How do you say the name? Asiatrope? Asiatrope. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear about how that came to be, because it seems like you're telling really important stories, and the mission of that company is so um, about, correct me if I'm wrong, but bringing stories to life that would otherwise be underrepresented. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of... That mission kind of came around in a very, you know, we had to discover that. Like the spine of the play, we kind of thought it was one thing, and then we just kept like, what? so why are we doing this still? Mm -hmm. Why are we still doing this, right? Richard Sloniker uh, was a classmate of mine at UW, and um, we didn't get a chance to work together very much when we were classmates, but we always kind of hit it off as pals. And so, you know, one day, like, drinking at the bar, we're like, so how do we keep working together? Find ways to, like, just do work, right? And that was exciting, and he was, you know, staying in Seattle. I was potentially going back to San Francisco. I wasn't sure what to do. And um, 
he had thought, well, why don't we start a theater company, right? And um, I was like, I don't know, theater company, that's like a theater baby. I'm not interested in paying child support to theater babies. That's like, right. you got to pay for like preschool and diapers and yeah. stuff like that. Um, well, he said, well, what if we, what if we made it like a, um, like a partnership coalition consortium and not really a company company, right? And the deal is we'll just do plays. We'll, we'll, we'll just do, we'll just produce stuff and do stuff. And I was like, great. Why, well, then why are, there's so many theaters in Seattle. I feel like there's just, you know, theater pops up all the time. Like, people are just making theater companies left and right, I feel like. That's my impression. So, like, why, do, why can't we just piggyback on someone else's theater company? You know? Because I want to be directing. I don't want to be running a theater. I, I do, I do in the future. But at the time, um, I was not interested. I wanted to go and be a director. Yeah. Right? Um, and we... There was a play we had both really wanted to do, and it was Adam Rapp's Red Light Winter. There was something uh, incredibly dark and isolating and really ugly about that play. Uh, and I think maybe just I have, you know, I'm drawn to dark material. At the time, I was drawn to dark material. And we really wanted to produce this, and we pitched it, pitched it, pitched it to all these other companies. And, you know, Act had said, like, yeah, I know the play. We like the play. It's not okay with our subscribers to do it. And I think at the time, Wet was like, we have too many women in our ensemble, we can't do it. And then we just like, well, screw it, we'll do it. If we pitch it to you, if, if I, I would rather someone produce it and hire me to direct it, because I'll kill it. But if no one wants to, then fine. Richard, let's save our pennies. Um, so we scraped together a couple thousand bucks and figured out how to do it. So we produced, that was the first thing we produced. Kind of on a, kind of on a lark, because not really... We had never really, I don't know, I wasn't interested in making a company. He was we just, we wanted to keep working together, mm -hmm. right? And I had no organizational vision, um, but the play was quite successful. And that's when I first met Tim Gowron, also, on that show. Hi, Tim, we love you. Hi, Tim. <laughs> uh, and so then it became like, okay, so what is, what is this, right? We knew, we, we had called ourselves Aziotrope because we needed some kind of organizational name. And he had said... Well, an AZ, I mean, Richard also, which is also a science person too. So uh -huh. an azeotrope is a, an expression used in chemistry. It has to do with um, when you have a solution of compounds in, in such a proportion that can't be separated through distillation, it's called an azeotrope. And so that felt like, oh, I like that. <laughs> we call ourselves. And then after, after Red Light Winter happened, we, we kind of said, oh, I guess this is a, a thing. I guess we are producing stuff now <laughs> and I guess we are a company. 2011, we did nothing, because I think the rule we had established was, if you if we don't have a play, we don't produce anything. Like this whole idea of like a four season slot and we have to fill the thing is a I mean, that's the worst way to do theater, right? It's not we're not machines, we're not theater machines. Yeah. And so the, I think the reason why we do what we do is because we're small and pliable, right? And so I said, well, all right, digging deeper, like why did we like that play? Why do we like the work that we like? And why do we find it important to do it? And why is it that all the why questions we want to ask? And it came down to, well, I want to, I want to talk about something no one else is talking about. But what did that mean? I mean, Adam Rapp's a white guy. It's a play about white people. It wasn't a play about white people, but the, the play wasn't dealing with race or diversity in a way that I'm normally interested in talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but it had to, but it had to do with something that was grotesque and ugly that I think people are afraid 
um, in themselves. Um, and so that was kind of like a roundabout way of saying, okay, well, that's kind of underrepresented, you know. And um, it, took several, it took several conversations and a lot of like soul searching and introspection to actually figure out like, is that why we like? Are we just like perverse people, right? We just want to do like dark shit or are we actually interested in something more than that? Um, and the next play we got interested in was a play called Jesus Hop the A-Train, um, which is about prison. Um, and, I, and I think that was the beginning of, of the mission statement kind of crystallizing into, mm-hmm. okay, we're interested in invisibility. We're interested in people that exist in real life but don't get visibility in the theater. And so from there, that kind of helped. Like, okay, so then I played was 25 Saints, which was about meth addiction in Appalachia. Um, and our biggest kind of, like, hurrah that we recently did was a play called Sound, which was the half ASL and half English play. And I think, you know, it just, it took, it took a while for us to kind of arrive at that. And, you know, right now, Richard and I are still figuring out 2016? I don't know. No mm-hmm. big plans right now. We're, we're thinking of doing um, a stage reading tour connected to the election somehow with the campaign trail and the politics and things. It's still, we're still kind of figuring out what our next steps are mm-hmm. um, for the company. Because everyone says, what are you doing next? <laughs> we don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I hope that wasn't the last thing we do. <laughs> but we're always looking. He's always reading. I'm always reading. Um, and at the same time, I think the joy of this company is that it gives both of us enough flexibility to have our own individual careers and our own individual lives, mm-hmm. you know? And so... Um, but I feel like Aziotrope is a company out of necessity. I, I want to feel like we'll do it because no one else has the guts to. So fine, we'll do it. You know, and I don't, there's so much theater. And not to say that there can't be more theater, but I feel like, you know, Theater 22 is doing amazing stuff. Like Straw Shop is doing amazing stuff. Um, I just don't want to be reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. You know, I have colleagues who are doing really powerful new plays, and so mm-hmm. I feel like, yay, go them. And I can be, why don't I, why don't I direct for you instead? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because frankly, I just hate producing. <laughs> that's, that's the long and short of it. I hate producing. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm very proud of the company. I'm very proud of Richard and our, you know, relationship and collaboration. And I, and I am glad that um, Seattle regards us as, you know, um, a presence in town. Um, it's very, very flattering and, you know, I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for visiting today. I yeah, look forward you. to seeing your work. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank Do you have you. any final thing you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, go see more theater. Mm-hmm.